0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figter. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Carlos Frankel. His new book is titled Teaching Plato in Palestine, Philosophy in a Divided World. It has just been published by Princeton University Press. Frankel is James McGill Professor in the Departments of Philosophy and Jewish Studies at McGill University. We tend to think of philosophy as a professional academic subject taught in college classes with its own rather specialized problems, vocabularies and methods. But we also realize that the discipline has its roots in the Socratic activity of trying to incite debate and critical reflection among our fellow citizens. That is, we acknowledge that apart from its existence as a technical discipline, philosophy is a kind of civic activity that, we hope, can help us address life's biggest questions even when we find ourselves deeply divided over their answers. In Teaching Plato in Palestine, Carlos Frankel tells the tale of his attempts to recapture philosophy's Socratic dimension he recounts his adventures in doing philosophy in non-standard contexts with atypical interlocutors and in unfamiliar places. Along the way, we see a hopeful and encouraging vision of philosophy emerge as a collection of rational techniques and intellectual virtues that can, indeed, rescue our individual and collective lives from impending incivility. As usual, there's a lot to talk about. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Carlos Frankel. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today?
1: Very well. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for joining for New Books in Philosophy.
1: Thank you for having me and for giving me a chance to talk about the book.
0: And thank, well, that's perfect. Thank you, listener, uh, for checking out the podcast. Today, my guest is Carlos Frankel. His new book is titled Teaching Plato in Palestine, philosophy in a divided world um this book is uh fascinating in lots of respects uh but one of which is um that it's partly a kind of um intellectual travel log um carlos takes us on a few uh philosophical adventures where he practices philosophy or teaches philosophy or talks about philosophy um in unexpected places with unexpected uh, uh, communities, um, but the book also defends uh, at the end a and manifests and practices a powerful vision of the role that philosophy can play and perhaps should play in our lives, both locally and interpersonally and globally. Um, teaching Plato in Palestine then is 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 really engaging. Uh, it's beautifully written as well, and so I, I highly recommend it uh to uh, anybody who might be listening uh to the podcast um, but before we get into or plunge into some of the uh some of the details um Carlos uh, we usually start with a a bit of biography from the author why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: yeah, sure, thank you above all um for your kind words about the book um, so um so people might already have guessed um, by my accent that i um I'm not an Anglophone by birth, so um, I was actually born in Germany, um, but two parents were both born in Brazil and who arrived in Germany just before I was born in 1970 as political refugees. Um, And so I spent my childhood in Germany, but uh, when I was about 10, uh, we decided to uh, go back to Brazil. or My parents decided to, to go back home, so to speak. And what was home for them was in some sense exile for me. So there was really a tremendous culture shock uh, when we relocated from Germany to Brazil and uh, from a small town in Germany to Sao Paulo. Um, and, uh, you know, everything was somehow different there uh, from uh, climate and food and uh, etiquette and social rules, and uh, I remember being really struck by the fact that my new uh, classmates uh, had never heard of the childhood books that I uh, had grown up with, Uh, you know, the uh, heroes that uh, shape every German boy's uh, imagination, so to speak. Um, And I had a very funny reaction to that experience, to this experience of culture shock, and that was idealizing or glorifying everything German and putting down everything Brazilian now, in mm-hmm. retrospect uh, I'm of course embarrassed by these very you know biased teenage uh, judgments, but I think it was also sort of a first um, attempt to somehow make sense of the world to defend a certain way of living to defend certain beliefs um, and um, you know, so it was um, in some sense a, a really a, 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 a sort of an in- initiation into 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 questioning and um um This this kind of uh, um, I would say almost diaspora nationalism. So this kind of Germanophilia took a heavy hit when my grandmother got really irritated with me. She had been actually uh, she so she was born in Germany and uh, had to leave when the Nazis came to power. So she has a German Jewish background, Um, and she gave me this book about. uh, a kind of photo documentary of the Holocaust, and so um, you know uh, my uh, my picture of Germany kind of imploded,
0: uh,
1: and I think that uh, some of the philosophical questions that I that I that I deal with really go all the way back to this kind of double identity crisis that I experienced when we moved to Brazil, um, and um, and uh, you know in some sense I I, I see I see my philosoph- philosophical career starting there, or at least some of the questions that I've pursued. Uh, my father always wanted me to become a carpenter because he felt that I was too much of a Luftmensch, but I didn't follow his advice, and so I did go into philosophy, and uh, uh, And I started out actually studying in Berlin um, uh, in the 1990s, and uh, in the 1990s, the uh, analytical philosophy was already pretty strong uh, in Germany, so there were people like... Uh, uh, Ernst Tuggenhardt, for example, still teaching um, in, in Berlin at the Freie Universität. And uh, I was quite attracted to analytical philosophy at the beginning, uh, you know, to the clarity and, and rigor of analytical philosophy. But I also felt uh, after a while that somehow the big question that I sort of came in with, uh, that I couldn't really somehow think about these questions within that uh, conceptual framework. And that somehow led me more into the history of philosophy to engaging with uh, philosophers of the past. Um, and so, quite a bit of my work actually has been on the history of philosophy, uh, and uh, I think I've, I've always been a bit of a confused person. And part of that confusion uh, was about, uh, you know, my Jewish roots and, uh, you know, to which extent do uh, I identify as a Jew? And so, I went to Israel for part of my graduate studies, and I studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, and I became quite interested in this question, uh, you know, how rationalism uh, uh, is related to, to religion and whether uh, you know being committed to uh let's say reason uh, somehow entails a rejection of religion um in israel as you as you probably know um you know there's this rather stark uh, contrast or conflict between uh, a secular camp and and a religious camp and so you have to somehow Take sides, and so these kinds of questions started interesting me, and and um, and so I spent quite a bit of time thinking about that, and, and my scholarly work uh, uh, explores some of the issues uh, related to uh, the relationship between philosophy and religion, or reason and religion. Um, And I also became interested in uh, political philosophy, um, you know, in in questions about uh, the conditions of uh, living a good life and so forth, the political conditions of living a good life. And I've been now in Canada for about 15 years, so I got my first uh, uh, academic job uh, at McGill University, uh, where I now teach uh, in the departments of philosophy and Jewish studies um and um issues of cultural diversity started uh, becoming interesting to me because, you know as you know montreal is one of the most multi- multicultural cities in the world and you know i was very fascinated by the idea of living in in in, in, in such a multicultural such a sort of vibrant uh, city but i was a little bit disappointed when i got here because i had this impression that uh, you know people uh, who come from very different backgrounds and were brought up with very different uh, cultural and religious traditions in some sense don't really engage each other so um there was a bit of a Disappointment with the Canadian version of multiculturalism and um they started thinking about you know um, are the more productive ways of uh, 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 making use of um, differences disagreements clashes intellectual clashes that uh, come about because you know because we we uh you know because we have these different backgrounds we belong to these different groups and so forth uh and you know so some of this i think is clearly reflected in the book that we that we're going to talk about so that's a little bit of uh, my rather eclectic uh, upbringing and 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 i guess intellectual intellectual journey
0: well that's it's fascinating because it does make um uh in some ways it makes a good sense of um the, the traveling philosopher uh, aspect <laughs> of of, yeah. of your work um, but let 's pick up on that and and as a lead into the book can can you tell us a little bit more uh, in more specific terms perhaps sort of about the conception of philosophy that you have because it seems that one of the things that drives the book and one of the um, themes uh, with which it concludes is a sort of conception of philosophy as um uh an activity rather than just a, a, a you know a subject that one might study uh it's an activity that is in some deep uh, way connected to um living a, a good life um perhaps it's also in a deep way connected to living civilly uh with others um but it's also a um a commitment to um, a certain kind of, I hope it's not too strong to say, confrontation mm-hmm. uh, with others. Can you can you tell us, just in general terms, sort of the the, the picture of philosophy that drives uh, the work in uh, in this book, at least?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so, so I think the concept of philosophy that I propose in this book is really a very deflated one. So, so, so I don't speak of philosophy as, let's say, a grand theory like Marxism or so. Um, But, but what I mean by philosophy is essentially, as as you pointed out, is essentially uh, you know philosophical techniques, uh, the toolkit of the philosopher, uh, you know, um, logical and semantic. uh, tools that allow us to clarify uh, uh, our views, that allow us to make an argument, that allow us to respond to an argument and so forth. So so, so basically the philosopher's toolkit and then also, I would say uh, something that one can maybe call the virtues of the philosopher, and above all here, um, the virtue of loving the truth more than winning an argument. Right. So if you want to have uh, the kind of productive discussions that I sought out um, in these uh, philosophical adventures that are described in the book, then I think you, uh, you you must go into this with the idea of uh, you know not not somehow. Uh, uh, convincing your interlocutor of your views, but really, um, um, you have to go into it as uh, you know with a sort of open mind and um, with the goal of um, of jointly uh, searching for the truth. Um, so, so, so this is really uh, these are the two basic components of the concept of philosophy that underlies this book. So, so philosophical techniques, philosophical virtues, and um, and 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 in part. Um, You know, it's it's not that I don't think that philosophy cannot be more than that, but I think for this specific project, where you know I go in and I engage uh, communities that have very different backgrounds and where people you know have uh, profoundly different views from my own, uh, you know, so I didn't want to go into this uh, somehow. In, in order to convey my own wisdom, uh, you know, in order to somehow convey my own views. So I don't, so I didn't, I didn't conceive of philosophy here as, as, as a way of teaching something, but really, um, as, as some kind of foundation for having a productive, uh, uh conversation. And as you said, um, 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 not just, you know, uh, 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 Entirely peaceful conversation, but also but also confrontation where where you really discuss about things um you know that you deeply care about but also deeply disagree on with your interlocutor um so uh you know so so I'm all for conflict as long as it uh, you know is intellectual conflict as as long as it remains uh, within the realm of debate and doesn't turn into violent conflict, but I think that um you know our differences can be made productive um if we if we channel them into. Into what I in the book call call a culture of debate, um, right? But no,
0: well, please go ahead. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now, now in my in my um, sort of uh, let's say more scholarly work, uh, my work in the history of philosophy, I've obviously uh, dealt quite a bit with uh, what I would call. Uh, you know a heroic concept of philosophy that you can find uh, in philosophers of the past, from Plato to Spinoza, so philosophers who really believe that uh, you know philosophy is is a kind of wisdom that can guide us in life, that can be the basis for uh, uh, for building uh, a good political community, that can maybe even console us, you know, uh, uh, in uh, in uh, times of uh, existential trouble. Um, and so, uh, so I've I've been fascinated also with this with this concept, you know, with this much more uh, Let's say powerful concept of philosophy where, you know, the idea really is that philosophy can be a kind of guiding science. Um, but I think it's, 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 it's a concept of philosophy that is very hard to defend and that is very much tied to metaphys- metaphysical premises that uh, are hard to defend. And so it was in some sense, uh, uh, yeah, it was a relief to be able to actually <laughs> take a certain distance from that and, 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 you know, and, and use philosophy really, um, uh, um, let's say um, do philosophy as, as as a practice rather than as rather than as a doctrine,
0: right? And I take it that um, as you say, you know, there's this two part sort of commitment as philosophy as the kind of practice that you're engaged in in the book. Um, but I take it that one of the things that makes you hopeful about um, that kind of engagement or those kinds of encounters, even when it looks as if the divides are are quite deep. Um, is that the philosopher's virtues um, and the philosopher's aim of of searching for truth, um, that that aim and those virtues are not sort of foreign to, um, you know, people on the street. That is that one of the things that comes up in the book fairly uh, regularly is um, you will say to one of your interlocutors, you know, well, don't you? But, you know, you believe things because you think that they're right. And if you think that they're right, you also think that there should be good reasons for them. Right. Um, and we're just asking for the reasons that somehow the philosophical activity that you're engaging in is not um, academic. Uh, it's sort of a um, perhaps more systematized version of the sort of um, cognitive processes that uh, human thinkers are engaged in. In any case, is that right?
1: I think I think that's 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 correct. So 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 this book is by no um means an, an attempt to somehow uh, uh, you know diminish the uh, achievements of academic philosophy or the importance of academic philosophy, but I do try to make a case for Also, taking philosophy out of the, let's say, traditional academic setting or classroom. And um, I try to show that one can make it relevant to, let's say, real world concerns or to concerns of people who don't have, uh, you know, uh, academic training in philosophy, who are not academic philosophers. Uh, So, taking it out into the street. And my sense is that, um, uh, you know, one can really go back and forth between these spheres. I think we can, uh, you know, make the training that we have received in philosophy useful also outside the academic sphere that we can uh, use that to, uh, to help um, in some sense um, uh, disseminating this practice of philosophy, right? So, so, so I, I don't see uh, the philosopher in this kind of public role as a, as a teacher of doctrines, but I do see him as someone who uh, can facilitate uh, conversations and who can in some sense provide the tools or uh, 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 lead people to the tools with which uh, these conversations can be can be conducted um, um, so so as someone who uh, you know disseminates what I call the practice of philosophy
0: well excellent um, so why don't we um, shift now to uh, actually some of the um, as we've been calling them adventures and they <laughs> they, they read like adventures um, uh, so um, w- maybe we could begin um, with just the book's title um, so uh, the, the the book uh, teaching Plato in Palestine begins with five chapters uh, where you describe um, th- encounters uh, with um, encounters as a philosopher or as somebody practicing philosophy uh, with um, people uh, in what we might call uh, non-standard. Environments, uh, so definitely not classrooms or not standard kinds of classrooms. Um, so, why don't we just begin with the with the experience uh, that you describe in the in the first chapter, which is the the teaching Plato in Palestine chapter. Can you can you tell us that story a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So 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 basically, um, 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 the first part of the book uh, includes uh, these five essays that describe uh, my experience of. Um, Organizing philosophy workshops or philosophy interventions uh, in different hotspots uh, around the world, and so I so I've organized these um, these these workshops or interventions uh, uh, over a period of uh, five years. Uh, so the first one uh, took place in 2006, and the last one in 2011. Um, and so. Um, Uh, The first essay is also the one that that gives the book as a whole its title, Um, so so this was a workshop that took place at a Palestinian university, Al-Quds University, which is a Palestinian university in East Jerusalem, and so I went there in 2006 and taught uh, one semester, I taught a seminar um, at this university, and I taught this seminar together with uh, Sari Nusebe, who is a prominent uh, Palestinian intellectual uh, and philosopher, some of you may uh, may actually know his name, um, and um, and so he was at the time also the president of Al-Quds University, um, and he was himself a professor also in the philosophy department there, um, and so we basically co-taught this class, which was a class for advanced undergraduate students, and so we had seven young men and uh, women uh, in the class, and, and we started out the class with a text by Plato, and hence the title of the book, Teaching Plato in Palestine, um, and then we also read texts by medieval Muslim philosophers and Jewish philosophers, so Al-Farabi, for example, or Maimonides, who uh, who built on Plato um, and who tried to work out... Um, what I call an interpretation of Islam and Judaism as a philosophical religion, as a religion of reason. And at the same time, our aim in this class was to to use these historical texts, these ancient and medieval texts, as a kind of springboard to also engage with the contemporary concerns of our students, political concerns, religious concerns, and so forth. Uh, uh, so that was the basic uh, idea behind, behind behind this first workshop. Um, and, um, and, and I think it worked out actually quite, quite nicely. So we often were able to go back and forth between these ancient texts and, uh, you know, questions that our, our students were struggling with. Uh, and I can give you a couple of, uh, of examples of these kinds of, uh, 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 intersections of, uh, historical material and contemporary concerns, um,
0: Yes, please. So, yeah.
1: so, 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 we, so we read, for example, excerpts from Plato's Republic. Um, and so, one one of the questions that Plato, at the beginning of the Republic in Book Two of the Republic, um, tries to uh, tries to ask is, uh, you know, this this sort of basic question about justice: whether we value justice for its own sake as something that is intrinsically valuable or whether we only value justice uh, uh, on account of its consequences, right? So are we just because we want to be just because we cherish justice itself, or are we just because we want to uh, benefit from the positive consequences of being just and avoid? bad consequences of not being just, Uh, you know, so so are we just because we uh, just want to secure a spot in heaven and avoid burning in hell, or are are we really just because we're convinced that justice is a good thing? So that's sort of a basic question that Plato starts uh, the Republic with. Um, And, um, um, you know, as far as I can tell, um, all of our students were, you know, they were Muslims, and I think they were also all pious a Muslim. So to just give you an example, one of the students, uh, a girl uh, by the name of Gizma, she uh, uh, at one point during a break uh, in our class, she showed around photos uh, of a wedding that she had attended um, uh, on the weekend. And, and some of the photos uh, I and the other men in the class were not allowed to see because she appeared in them uh, without her veil and being seen mm-hmm. unveiled in public by men. Uh, you know, is considered illicit. So just to show, you know, that uh, our students were quite quite strict in their observance, and their religious observance. Um, Now, um, the the thought experiment that Plato proposes uh, in Book 2 of the Republic, uh, which is, you know, a famous one, the Ring of Pugus, is, uh, you know, this idea that um, um, what would you do if you had, uh, you know, a magical ring that every time you put it on, makes you invisible and allows you to commit whatever injustice you fancy without having to fear any kind of bad consequences any kind of punishment for that right and so and so so what prato is trying to get at is uh, you know whether if you had this ring whether you would actually use it in order to become an unjust person or whether you would nonetheless remain just because you Appreciate, appreciate justice for its own sake because you think it's intrinsically valuable. Um, mm-hmm. And it was very interesting, uh, you know, to see the reaction of the students. So so, so, so so, the same student, Bisma, whom I had mentioned before, was actually one of the students who said that if she had this magical ring, the Ring of Bugus, she would actually choose injustice over justice, mm-hmm. impiety over piety, you know, because there wouldn't be a reason anymore to it. <laughs> <laughs> to to you know to be observant to follow the rules um, and um, and so and so you know we really got an interesting discussion going about this you know very basic question uh, you know why do we choose to be just uh, uh, or or pious um you know what what are the reasons we have for that uh and you know it was it was really quite fascinating um, so that's 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 one example um where you can see, in some sense, how let's um, say religious concerns, you know, became an object of of discussion, became an object of of of, of reflection. But obviously, uh, uh, these students also had uh, political concerns, um, and so um, we also had a very interesting discussion about this question of nonviolence, nonviolent resistance, mm-hmm. non-violence, uh, uh you know, opposition to the occupation, um, and and Sari Nuseibeh was actually one of the most prominent advocates of nonviolence uh, in, in in Palestine in Palestinian intellectual circles. And his basic argument is that um, you know nonviolence is is a good thing for prudential reasons because it's the most efficient way of getting what Palestinians want to get, namely some kind of uh, you know political. Uh, independence and an end of the occupation, um, and um, and what he says is that uh, you know Israelis are sort of enlightened occupiers, uh, so he compares them to the uh, to the British. Um, so you know nonviolence doesn't always work; doesn't work in every conflict, but he does think that it uh, that it that it would work uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because he thinks that Israelis are sufficiently enlightened to see that. Uh, 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 if they were confronted with nonviolent resistance, uh, they would they would realize that uh, the occupation is not justified. And in addition, he argues, um, in nonviolent resistance would, uh, you know, secure. Uh, the entire world's sympathy for the Palestinian cause. So not only would Israelis realize you know, that the occupation is not justified, but there would also be a tremendous amount of pressure on Israel from outside to uh, to end the occupation. And so he he argues that this is the most efficient way of getting what Palestinians uh, want. And so he thinks that nonviolence is is uh, uh, you know is, is what you should choose on prudential grounds. Now obviously one can discuss this argument and uh, you know. Um, and raise objections to it, but uh, what was interesting for me is that uh, that we that we that we had an interesting conversation about this when we again were engaged with the Republic, um, and uh, more specifically when we uh, talked about Plato's uh, moral psychology. So, mm. so as you know, you know for Plato the the human soul is not just uh, uh, rationality. So we are not just uh, you know, our soul is not just made of reason, but uh, it also has these irrational impulses and uh, desires that often conflict with reason. And, um, and uh, you know, and Plato thinks that if we don't manage to somehow subdue these irrational impulses and desires, then they might actually get control over our behavior. And so one of the key uh, virtues that Plato that Plato recommends in the Republic is sophrosyne uh, or uh, moderation, self-control. Right. So, so if you want to live according to what reason prescribes, then you need self-control in order to keep your irrational uh, impulses and desires in check. Um, and so, um, so the question that we discussed in class was whether this virtue of self-control might, in some sense, be a key to uh, resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, precisely because it allows uh, you to control the reflex or the, the 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 desire to hit back when you get hit and uh, because it allows you to choose nonviolent resistance which is at least according to the argument which is what reason prescribes right so you can implement the instructions of reason if you have that virtue and uh, if you refrain from from hitting back when you get hit uh, and so uh, you know so, so so again i think uh, uh, it's sort of a Know, an illustration of how, of how, of how this text in some sense comes to life uh, in this in this particular context and allows you to discuss certain you know, fundamental issues that um, that uh, these students were uh, are concerned with and that are obviously know uh, not directly tied to this text. Um,
0: right. So let me just ask a, just a quick question, especially about the uh, um, the invisibility ring uh, from yeah. two of the Republic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where uh, you know you describe a a, a surprising result that a um, a devout Muslim uh, girl um, would in fact uh, do what Plato's interlocutors Glaucon and Adimantus say one would do <laughs> right right which is choose the unjust path when you can do so without uh the threat of being detected and 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 punished um did you uh did you find um in, in the in the Palestinian context uh when you were teaching this material that the uh, student breakdown on the invisibility ring w- was in any obvious way different from how the students in uh at McGill for example or at Oxford uh might disagree
1: yeah yeah um uh that's uh that's that's a good question um so, so i think um the reaction um was in some sense different because uh, you know when when you teach this material to students who are secular um and to the extent that they have some kind of commitment to justice it is not based on you know fear of punishment or hope for reward right and so uh uh so they already have i guess a concept of uh, you know justice intrinsic value that in some sense predisposes them to uh you know to not make use of the uh, magical magical ring uh so um so i would say that um mm. you know so, so 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 if your motivation to embrace let's say piety or justice uh is not um you know uh getting 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 a certain reward for your behavior or avoiding a certain punishment for transgression um i think then you uh are more likely to uh to reject uh the uh you know then the, then you're more resistant to the allure of the ring of gurgus uh, i i would say that yeah mm-hmm. um interesting
0: mm-hmm. um so um can we move to uh, to another context with that of course? Okay? Of course, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um I was also just um interested in the um the experience that you had um with a uh what you call an underground Spinoza seminar in New York. Right. Can you tell us <laughs> right. Can you tell us about that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe I'll say a little bit about 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 the general project um um and then and then I'll come back to the specific um to this specific uh, uh, example um, sure um, and so um so so the idea of you know of of, of going to these uh, different places and engaging these uh, different uh, groups in, in in these philosophical discussions uh, so, so 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 part of the motivation was basically to 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 seek out uh, places of of conflict, right? So 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 I did a workshop uh, at this Palestinian university, I did the a workshop in Indonesia um at a State Islamic university, um and then I did uh, the workshop that you just mentioned with a group of labs, the uh, Hasidic Jews in New York City. Um and then I did um some classes with um actually high school students in poor neighborhoods in Brazil. Um and um the last workshop took place with um a group of um uh, Mohawk uh, Uh, with the First Nations community, uh, a Mohawk community on the border between Canada and the U.S. And, and, you know, and these are all places uh, uh, in some sense fraught with conflict, different different kinds of conflict, of course. Um, So, uh, you know, so you have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, obviously, that we already talked about a little bit. Uh, You have the more general conflict between Islam and the West that, you know, has become important since uh, the end of the uh, Cold War. Um but you also have a conflict like uh, religious orthodoxy versus urban modernity, as in the case of you know uh, Hasidic Jews in New york. Uh, you have social and racial divisions in Brazil uh, and obviously you have uh, the scars of colonial history in First Nations communities and Native American communities in uh, in north america um, and so and so part of the the basic idea of the book is to show that uh, philosophy. In this deflated sense that I described um, at the beginning of our conversation, that philosophy can be useful to to address the questions that these kinds of conflicts generate, right? Questions about you know, God's existence, uh, uh, the question whether, for example, violence is justified—that we already talked about—how uh, one should live, um, uh, you know, what what is what is social justice and how can one get there? Uh, who should rule? um who should count as a member of a, of the community uh, which are very important questions in these uh, first nations communities uh, that are trying to regain uh, a certain a certain measure of, of self-governance or even sovereignty and that are trying to determine what the boundaries of the communities are and so so this was sort of the general impetus uh, for 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 these uh, for these for these adventures and travels um and um so um yeah so 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 in new york um, I, I basically found found a group of uh, uh Satmar uh, Hasidic Jews and the Satmar community is really the most secluded uh, community of all in the Hasidic uh, Jewish world um but um, but these were really um, um Hasidic Jews of a particular uh, type uh, because um, as i mentioned they were lapsed Hasidic Jews and they really lived uh, a fascinating double life um so um no so um, um outwardly um um they were good members of the community and you know practicing orthodox jews and uh, you know they would go to the synagogue uh, every friday and saturday for shabbat and so forth um you know so they they really kept up these uh, ultra orthodox appearances but inside they were complete freethinkers who had broken away entirely from the Jewish tradition and believed in nothing, uh, so you know, so, they, so, so 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 there was a real sort of you know fundamental existential intellectual uh, tension conflict uh, um, um, that they were living um, and and they were in some sense thrilled by it. You know, they really enjoyed this sort of double life. Uh, it, it, and they felt it as, as as it was an enrichment for them in some sense. Uh, I remember, for example, um, um. Towards the end of this workshop, uh, we we actually read some Nietzsche. So so again, we started with Plato. We also read Al Ghazali, and I'll maybe say a little more about about Al Ghazali in a minute. Mm-hmm. We read Maimonides, Spinoza, and then we ended with Nietzsche. Um, and and I and I and I told them um, at the end of one class to to think about how uh, Plato, Maimonides, and Spinoza would reply to Nietzsche's claim that uh, you know that that, that 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 God is dead, and uh, you know. Um, and if they would have some kind of response to that, um, and uh, and one of them said, um, "Thank you so much, Carlos, for you know, for giving us this question. So now at least I will have something to think about when I'm um, you know uh, praying in uh, in synagogue on Shabbat.
0: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: something to keep me occupied. It's <laughs> amazing what I'm trying to avoid listening to the rabbi. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, anyway." Um, so yeah, so, so, so again, you know, we 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 started that um, that workshop with uh, uh, so we 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 read the the apology, uh, we read uh, the UD Pro, um, and it was very interesting for me. To see their reaction to 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 these texts by Plato, so so I think one of the rewards of uh, doing this was that I got to see some of the texts you know that I had obviously thought about and that I had taught in, an ag- academic context that I got to see these texts in an in, a, in an entirely new light. So so one of the things that, that they were surprised about was that you know Socrates really comes across as a rather kind of pious person. Um, and they were really convinced that once you commit yourself to reason, there is no place whatsoever for religion. So they were really, uh, in some sense, you know, quite manichean about that. So if you're a rationalist, then you cannot also be religious. And so how is it possible that this founding figure of philosophy is actually, in some sense, you know, seems to be a pious person? He uh, somehow uh, you know, carries out his philosophical mission after he gets his oracle um from uh uh you know uh, apollo um and he uh, you know he in some sense you know is 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 a kind of martyr for philosophy he he doesn't want to give up his philosophical mission because he doesn't want to disobey the divine uh, command and so so they couldn't really get their head around 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 that uh you know that you can be a great philosopher and at the same time in some sense uh, a religious person um and uh, so one of the uh Theories that they came up with. That one of them came up with was that Socrates had died too early, and so, you know, so I was really puzzled by that suggestion because you know he hadn't died that early. Uh, you know, um, was almost seventy. Um, and then so I asked him, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, in which sense? Uh, you know, um, what what does Socrates' religiosity have to do with uh, with the date of his death? And so he said, well, um, you know, when when I Uh, uh, lost my my religion. I didn't lose it all at once, but it was really sort of a process, a gradual process. Uh, uh, So at first uh, I noticed somehow that the things that the rabbis in our community were saying didn't really add up and so I decided to go back to the medieval commentaries on the Bible and then I felt that these commentaries also didn't really make so much sense and so I went back to the rabbinic classics, to the Talmud and uh, to the Mishnah um, and then I uh, didn't really trust those verses either, and I went back to the Bible itself, and I felt, you know, I felt really proud that I was the only one who was following God's true word, and everybody else was being misled by these human interpretations of God's word, and for a while I became a kind of biblical Jew, but then, in the end, uh, you know, the Bible didn't really hold up uh, anymore either. And that's when the bottom kind of fell out and, you know, and, 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 and he experienced this deep uh, philosophical, uh, this, this deep existential and intellectual crisis. And uh, he basically lost, lost his, uh, his religious uh, conviction altogether. Uh, and so, and so, so what he was trying to suggest was that, that Socrates hadn't quite made it, made it to this final step. Right, so he had, to, you know, maybe gradually liberated himself from different uh, layers of religion, but he hadn't quite made this final step, and this explained um, the kind of uh, religious dimension of the portrait of Socrates that you get in the Apology. Um, yeah, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a really quite interesting uh, uh, attempt to interpret uh, to interpret the Apology, um, but. Um, um, I think one of the most interesting conversations we had um, um, was when we read um, Al-Khazali. So Al-Khazali is um, one of the most important uh, medieval Muslim uh, theologians. Um, he lived in the 10th and early 11th century, um, and, um, um, and he to this day is recognized as one of the you know, uh, uh, fundamental theological authorities in Islam. Um, and uh, towards the end of his life, he wrote a kind of intellectual autobiography, Um, and uh, that was the text that we read together in in English translation, of course. Um, And he starts out this uh, intellectual autobiography with an account of his own crisis of uh, faith. And this crisis of faith uh, occurred when he noticed that he would have been just as fervent a Jew or Christian as he used to be a Muslim had he been brought up in a Jewish or Christian community. So he basically realizes that you know, his, his strong conviction, his, his belief uh, in the truth of Islam was not the outcome of rational deliberation and choice, but it was basically the outcome of the contingent circumstances of his upbringing, what he calls uh, the influence of his parents and teachers. Um, and once he realizes that, once he realizes that had he been, uh, you know, born into a different community and brought up under different circumstances, he would have been a different person with a different set of beliefs. Uh, he, he basically loses his uh, his faith in Islam. Uh, and much of the rest of the book is then um, um, uh, describes basically his attempt to rebuild his faith in Islam and uh, how he tests different interpretations of Islam to find out which is a true one and so forth. Um, but but the students could really could really relate to this description of his initial experience of crisis of faith and um, and one of the students actually told me um, a story that was in some sense uh, 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 you know related or or, or uh, was based on on a, on a somewhat similar experience um and so and so he said that um um you know when before he had his own uh, intellectual crisis when he was still a believing and committed jew um he would get up very early every morning in order to uh, to demonstrate his uh, you know his religious passion by studying torah even before um the sun uh, uh, got up um even before sunrise and on his way to the synagogue he would pass by a mosque and he would notice that uh, you know muslims were already praying um in the mosque uh, and so he thought you know if we are both so passionate about our religion that we get up to worship god before sunrise how can i be sure that my religion is the true one and theirs uh, is false right somehow you know the same kind of passion drives us so you know what 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 gives me reason to believe that um, you know that i am right and, and they are wrong And so, um, you know, so we had a really interesting discussion about this question whether some of uh, our most intimate and and fundamental convictions may not be all that well founded after all, but may be the outcome of, you know, rather contingent uh, circumstances of upbringing and education and exposure to, uh, you know, uh, um, religious political rhetoric and so forth.
0: And uh, am I right in remembering that uh, Ghazali actually has a word for this phenomenon—the the, the the influence of the contingencies of one's tradition and circumstance? That's right.
1: right. That's right. That's right. So 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 and and I use I use this term as a kind of technical term in the book. Uh, so 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 basically the Arabic word is taklid. right? Um and um and it's 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 not so so easy to translate, but it basically means you know submission to the authority of uh you know teachers uh, and and. and to, to the authority of parents and teachers uh, in an uncritical way or the uncritical acceptance of uh, the uh, teachings that one receives from uh, from authorities
0: and, and this seems and this seems to be one of the um, the threads that connects um, these encounters uh, despite the differences between uh, the communities um, each of the, um, uh, the communities you engage with seems to have this worry about, um, you know, uh, blindly following the tradition rather than seeing the reasons, uh, in favor of it. They, uh, y- you keep raising like, um, uh, you know, the, the Mohawk community seems to have a concern with, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, with this as well. Right. Um, uh, Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think the Mohawk community is a good example of, uh, you know, where you in some sense, um, you you don't really have to bring philosophy to them. They're already engaged in a kind of, you know, a vigorous conversation. uh, And in part, that is due to the many differences uh, uh, among different groups um, in these communities. And these differences are really due to, uh, uh, you know, um, um, to colonial history, right? So, so you find Catholics there, you find Protestants there, you find different attempts to revive some kind of ancestral tradition, you know, going back to what they believe is, uh, uh, you know, the culture and religion of their ancestors. Um, um, and uh, you find secular people there. And so in some sense, you know, you already have, have uh, a debate that is due to this uh, fractured colonial history. Um, and um, um, so, um, yeah, so you know, so that that I think also helps to justify, uh, you know, doing philosophy in these places. You're not somehow imposing something on them, but you're in some sense, uh, you know, facilitating and maybe offering tools to uh, to do something that they're already practicing anyway. Um, and um, but the main reason for me to to actually choose uh, this community, so 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 the name of the reserve. Of the reservation or reserve, I think in Canada, is the and it's uh, it's one of the biggest Mohawk uh, reservations in North America. There are about 11,000 uh, Mohawks uh, who live there, and it straddles really the um, the border of um, US and Canada. So you have actually two uh, national jurisdictions and three provincial jurisdictions. So, uh, you know, uh, so again, a, a rather fractured, fractured colonial uh, geography. Um, so it's between Quebec, Ontario, and New York. Uh, and then you have also three uh, internal uh, governments on the uh, reservation, uh, some of which are supported by Canada, others by the U.S., and some are really sort of uh, try to... Try to uh, Revive, um, um, you know, a traditional form of governance, and have no support from either a country. And so, in some sense, it's really a, a, a perhaps the most governed spot on uh, Earth. Um, you know, so five, uh, so, so two, two national, three provincial uh, governments, and 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 then three internal governments. So altogether, think like eight governments, and. Uh, at least in, in theory, uh, on the Canadian side, I think the queen is uh, the one who is uh, still uh, you know, technically in charge. Um, and uh, 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 one of the interesting things uh, that I found out was um, that uh, the ideal of governance is actually no government at all. And so uh, one of the sort of uh, uh, paradoxes I came to appreciate uh, um um, talking to them was that uh, you know the the ideal of the most governed place on earth was no no government at all, but 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 the basic question really was was um, was about about a self governance agreement that they were negotiating with uh, with Canada. So so basically this workshop took place on the Canadian side of the reserve, and they were. Um, um, Engage in negotiating with the Canadian government a uh, self-governance agreement. So, 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 so the idea basically was that they would take charge at least a part of their own affairs. So, so until now, basically, uh, the relation between Canada and its uh, you know, native communities, First Nations communities, is governed by the Indian Act, which uh, uh, goes back to the uh, late 19th century and you know, was a very uh, paternalist framework uh, based on the assumption that. Uh, you know Indians couldn't govern themselves and therefore need um the uh the federal government to take care of them and so there is now a push to replacing the Indian Act and the legal framework that it comes with through uh, 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 you know, through uh, self-governance institutions. And so the terms of these have obviously to be uh, have to be negotiated. And so this is what this community was engaged in. Um, yeah, and that opens up some of the most fundamental questions of political philosophy. So it's in some sense, uh, you know, some of the uh, you know, most basic questions in political philosophy were life questions for them. You know, so if the. Canadian, the federal government withdraws. Who should then rule? You know, who should replace? Who should replace them? Um, uh, with what? With what kind of uh, aim should 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 the should the government rule? You know, what is the idea of um, let's say a flourishing uh, individual and communal life that should uh, guide um, um, the uh, new the new governance institutions? Um, who is a member of the community? And you know, and all these questions were basically. Questions that they had to discuss and that they had to come to some kind of um, um, answer to, and um, and as I mentioned, um, you know, um, because there are so many different factions uh, on this reservation, you know, people have different views on these issues, and so uh, I think part of the attraction for them to to have me there and to facilitate a, a discussion was that um, um, you know that um, that they really needed to have this conversation, and so they so they appreciated um, um someone who in some sense was neutral who came from the outside who uh, you know didn't take sides and who um had um let's say tools that would help them to conduct this kind of a conversation
0: excellent um so let's uh again um, uh, for the listeners you know the narratives that uh, that you tell in the first five chapters are are, are really, really engaging and um, the, the, the parts in each of the chapters where you um, reproduce, um, you know, actual bits of dialogue or you, you recount actual bits of dialogue are, are, are revealing of, of all kinds of interesting and in some ways surprising similarities um, that uh, um, might be um, uh, unexpected. Um so let's now turn to the to the to the second part of the book your your you know part 2 which is uh, chapter 6 mm-hmm. um where you draw some lessons or c- extract some lessons from these uh five encounter five kinds of encounters um so it looks as if uh, the book ends on a on a pretty um encouraging and hopeful um note about the potential um, for philosophy as this kind of, as you were saying, deflated activity um, of questioning and debate um, uh, to help, um, you know, uh, render civil uh, some differences that are constantly threatening in our present world and, um, or maybe teetering on the on the brink of of incivility. Mm-hmm. Um can you tell us a little bit about how how you draw those lessons out of the uh of the five encounters? Yeah, yeah. So so
1: so so I think um, um uh, you know I have basically two two goals in this book. Uh, one uh, that I already mentioned, uh you know trying to show by example in a sense um that philosophy can be useful to addressing the kinds of questions that arise from these different conflicts um, that uh, people were struggling with in these different places that I visited. Um, But at the same time, um, you know, as you can imagine um, in these workshops, uh, different viewpoints often clashed, right? So people would disagree with me, but they would also disagree amongst each other. I just mentioned, uh, you know, the, uh, the diversity um, and um, the, uh, you know, the fractured nature of the, uh, First Nations communities, so so there were internal disagreements, um, and um, and so 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 the second main point that I try to argue in this book is that uh, fundamental disagreements, um, you no, know, on moral, philosophical, uh, and religious issues are actually not a bad thing, but that they are a good thing, as long as we can channel them into into what I call a culture of debate, as long as they don't. Uh, you know, erupt in uh, violence. So, um, uh, a culture of debate, uh, on the most basic level, um, is, is, is basically an intellectual space, um, where we can discuss things that we deeply care about, but also deeply disagree on across cultural and religious divides, right? That's what I, that's basically what I mean by, um, by this notion of a culture, um, of, uh, debate. And, um, you know, the idea here is, um, if we imagine, say, humankind engaged in a kind of global conversation, uh, there would, you know, obviously be many things that we disagree on, from God's existence and the origin of the universe, and um, how one should live, how one should educate one's children, uh, how uh, one should uh, treat uh, differences between genders, um, how, uh, you know, um, um, what constitutes uh, good politics. Uh, uh, how political power should be related to religious power, and so on and so on, right? So I think we disagree on all these things. Um, now, um, obviously, mm, I think, you know, we, are, well, at least most of us, I think, agree on that we don't want these disagreements to turn into violence, right? So uh, let's say uh, a Muslim fundamentalist uh, shooting uh, cartoonists in Paris for publishing, uh, uh, you know, caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad, War a couple of decades earlier, also in Paris, Christian fundamentalist uh, uh, fundamentalists torching cinemas for um, showing um, uh, Martin Scorsese's *The Last Temptation of Christ*, which many Christian groups, conservative Christian groups, considered uh, sacrilegious. Um, and so, um, you know, so so so, so that we we don't want that. Um, what I basically argue is that um, what we also don't want is this kind of multicultural complacency, where we basically say that. Um, you know each one uh, each one of us is entitled to his or her own uh, opinion and uh, we're not going to engage with each other and we will uh, somehow uh, treat um, you know all these opinions as equivalent as equally good um so in some sense um, this culture of debate tries to steer um, a middle way between i guess violence between war and, and 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 peace right so 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 it's war it's 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 in favor of war but but intellectual war as it were as uh, so it's in favor of intellectual uh, conflict um now why why do i say that um you know having these disagreements and and, and discussing them is is a good thing um and so give you a simplified version of the of the basic argument um so 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 the anthropological assumption here is uh, the assumption about human nature here is that that we do have a desire to figure out um the truth about about these big issues that I've mentioned before mm-hmm. uh, so i think uh, you know uh, most of us uh, you know feel uncomfortable if we suspect that uh, our views on these issues are are false so i think uh, you know most human beings want to 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 get to the truth to, to get to the bottom of these of these issues um and obviously um, we all have strong uh, views so or we have views and often strong views on these issues uh, right so we have convictions about whether God exists uh, what the origin of the universe is, how one should treat gender difference uh, 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 how one should educate one's children, and so on um, but uh, having uh, views and even strong views on these uh, issues doesn't entail that we actually write on them. Right. And um, and so if you're willing to concede that, if you're willing to concede that you may be wrong, so if you're you know, basically a fallibilist, um, so if you're willing to concede that the things that you believe are right may be, uh, may be wrong, may turn out to be wrong, then I think you have um, a good reason to engage in these kinds of uh, debates across cultural and religious divides because they're basically an opportunity for you to uh, think, to critically think about the convictions that you that you hold, and these are, as I say, uh, you know, convictions that are quite 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 basic convictions that are convictions around which we organise our, uh, you know, individual and political life. So, so these are not just uh, you know uh, frivolous uh, questions, but these are, are sort of fundamental questions. Um, and so, yeah, so 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 in that sense, um, and I think uh, you know uh, discussions are all the more productive and. And and it's interesting if they occur across culture and religious divides, because because then we cannot rely um, on the narratives that we were brought up with, right? When Jews uh, discuss with Jews and Palestinians with Palestinians and secular people with secular people uh, uh, and so forth, uh, you know, there's a sort of kind of background, uh, uh, this sort of set of background agreements that doesn't, then let lead to uh, you know to, to grappling with the more fundamental questions. But if you have these discussions across these boundaries, where you cannot rely on the narratives that you were brought up with, then you're actually forced to argue for your views, and um, and uh, so you know it puts pressure on you too to come up with reasons, to come up with arguments uh, to defend your views, and in uh, and, and that process to also criti- critically reflect on your views. Um,
0: Right so this is a you know again a, a a very attractive model at least um from my perspective uh and i think that um from the perspective of philosophers uh generally this is a um a pretty good um image of uh what we do and what we try to Uh, instill in our students' um, interest in doing. Um, But you do consider uh, sort of a a certain kind of pushback um, that alleges that um, your image of the culture of debate is a kind of um, uh, imposition of a certain Western Enlightenment ideal of the individual and the individual rationality and um, uh, um, other kinds of sort of b- pretty um, particular uh, cultural and political um, aspirations that come along uh, with the Enlightenment. Um, so what, what, can, can you run us through what you say about the, the worry that the, the culture of debate is really just a, a, a subtle form of um, cultural imperialism?
1: Right, right. So you know, so, so so I came across these objections a few times, and so I felt that I that I should address it in the book. Um, and I think part of the answer really um, lies in the first part of the book, you know, where I um, often use texts, philosophical texts that are tied to the religious tradition of the groups that I am engaging. Right. So in order to build on local, you know, traditions of uh, critical reflection and and debate and so you know obviously there is a vibrant tradition of, of philosophical thinking um, um, both in the traditional Islamic world and uh, you know uh, in the Jewish tradition um, um, obviously there is uh, uh, also um, you know a lot of uh, philosophy going on in uh, in the Christian world um, and um, uh, now these are the intellectual traditions that I'm more familiar with that are um, you know, more prominent in the book simply because, you know, part of my scholarly expertise lies in these traditions. Uh, but obviously there is a very rich tradition of uh, debate and philosophy uh, also, uh, you know, uh, in, in Eastern um, uh, Eastern religions, um, especially in Buddhism, uh, but also to a certain extent uh, uh, in China, um, obviously also in Hinduism. Um, um, and so, um, you know, so I think um, um, as long as one limits oneself to this deflated concept of philosophy. I think one can really find it in a very wide range of religious and culture traditions. Uh, And so, you know, it is at work in these traditions. It's not something that we uh, import into them or something that we try to impose on them, but you know, people have been engaging with uh, fundamental questions uh, within these contexts, uh, you know, for for a very long time. And so uh, you know, so one can build on those uh, local traditions, I think, of 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 philosophy and um, um, and you know another objection that I, that I try to address is that fallibilism is something that is very unattractive to uh, a religious interlocutors right so many of my interlocutors were not secular but you know deeply religious uh, uh, pious uh, uh, devout um, and um, you know um, is it actually possible to convince them to uh, embrace fallibilism um, you know wouldn't they say that um, you know maybe reason is fallible indeed but this is just a reason to actually not follow reason at all but to somehow uh you know um simply go with faith uh and uh you know and, and accept the truth not not based on arguments but based on faith and um you know just uh, circumvent uh, just avoid uh, philosophical discussion altogether um and i think uh, uh you know one might get these kinds of responses but i actually never got those on the ground <laughs> So none of the people, you know, uh, whether Jewish or Muslim or Christian, that I actually uh, talked with, uh, gave me this kind of reply, uh, and uh, you know, they were always actually very interested and 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 willing to engage in the kinds of conversations that I was offering. So um, you know, on the ground, I must say, I've, I've never, I've never met this kind of reaction, um, and I think one can again also point to a number of texts that help to. To motivate the kind of caliberalism that I think is essential to this project from within those uh, religious and and cultural traditions, and one of these texts is precisely the text that, I, that, I, that, I, that we already talked about, uh, Al Khazali's intellectual uh, you know uh, uh, autobiography, in which he describes you know this profound crisis of faith that he experienced as a young man. And um, that basically triggered the search for the truth of Islam that he then describes in the rest of the book, um, and where he examines different interpretations of Islam, uh, the competing interpretations of Islam, and uh, at the outset he doesn't know which one is the right one, and um, uh, you know, and um, and so um, you know, so 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 this is sort of a model of um, of, of the kind of quest that I have in mind, and um, and again, you know, Al Ghazali is, is, is not a marginal figure, but it's really a central figure in Islamic theology. And so, um, you know, and I think one can point to other examples um, that, help to, uh, that help to show that this kind of approach, um, you know, is perfectly uh, acceptable within those religious relations. That doesn't mean that one will get everyone on board, but I think um, um, one can show that, you know, quite a few people could come on board and could participate in this without having to... Um, in some sense uh, betray um um their religious or cultural
0: tradition. Well Carlos you've been very uh, generous uh with your time and it's it's been really um wonderful to talk to you about your book Teaching Plato in Palestine. Um last question I I typically ask when we've got a minute. Uh so what what's your next project will you will you will you do more um philosophical traveling? <laughs> um
1: so um N- not not uh, on on the short uh, term uh, so i have i have no, uh, no 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 other philosophical adventures lined up right now um i'm, I'm actually uh, working on something more personal more subjective uh, um um a kind of family memoir oh. so that's uh, no, that that goes back to uh, the confused person that i am trying to figure out uh, <laughs> Uh, you know um, it's, it's in some sense an attempt to, to reconstruct the genesis of some of my questions uh, uh from a from a kind of uh family historical uh, perspective and um uh, but but philosophically i think one, one of the things that i that i want to explore more is really um both um let's say um the meaning of um of what I called um, at the beginning of our conversation this heroic concept of philosophy uh and um and whether um you know it is, has really become indefensible you know this idea that philosophy can guide us uh, in our individual lives in our political lives uh, that it can possibly console us um um, whether it is uh, really indefensible and what this loss means for the project of philosophy as a whole—that's so sort of a question that has been has been on my mind quite a bit, and that I hope to to be able to engage uh, in the near future.
0: Well, I'll keep an eye out for that. That sounds uh, fascinating, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on new books in philosophy in the future to uh, to talk about uh, uh, your future work. Sure. Um, but for now, let me just thank you once again uh, for uh, for talking about. Teaching Plato in Palestine.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes, take care now. Take care. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Carlos Frankel of McGill University. We were talking about his new book, Teaching Plato in Palestine, Philosophy in a Divided World, newly published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening.